Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender. So I think we watched a pretty good batch of movies to to talk about this week. Mostly horror. Yeah, which was not intentional, but I guess that was just the mood that we were in. Um, Before we get into that, though, I just want to say I am buzzing with excitement right now, and I think... The reason is fourfold. I mean, first of all, it's because we're doing this, which is just super cool. (laughs) Once a week. Super cool. Super cool. We have a podcast. Other people don't. That's sick. Um, Second is because we watched one of my favorite movies, revisited one of my favorite movies last night, and we're going to be covering that on next week's episode. So stay tuned for that. But I'm still just kind of riding the high from it. Uh, three, because our good buddy Ashley, friend of the show, been on a couple times, uh, is coming over for a little daytime movie watching extravaganza. Well, I mean, she's watching one movie with us. Yeah, but it's going to be the Bob's Burgers movie and she's picking up burgers on the way. Yeah. And I, I just, that's such a lovely way to spend a Sunday afternoon. I'm so excited. And lastly, it, as of this recording, we're recording this on Sunday January 15th and tonight is the premiere of The Last of Us on HBO and I am beside myself with excitement it's it's like one of, the, one of my most anticipated things of the year is this show and I'm so excited I'm looking forward to it did you forget the fivefold of Ki Huy Kwan winning so many things this week or well, winning the Golden oh my Globes god yeah I guess that's another thing to talk about is um, the Golden Globes happened last week and you know, everything everywhere didn't didn't do the sweep that I wanted. But seeing Kihi Kwan win the first award of the night, and I would say the like probably one of the most important awards of the night, next to Michelle Yeoh also winning uh, Best Actress. Then Colin Farrell oh, and his yeah. speech was awesome. All three of them had great speeches. Yeah, and honestly, that's kind of my dream squad uh, come Oscar night is. 
I would love to see all of the all of them win. I would love to see Daniels win director or at least get a writing because they didn't win either at the Golden Globes. Um, and then of course to see everything everywhere win Best Picture. I wouldn't be upset if Banshees won. Um, would you be upset if the Fablemans won? You know, I I do love Steven Spielberg. We haven't seen the Fablemans, but I just like I feel like whatever wins the Oscar should encompass kind of something. It should be it should mark the times that the time that it came out in. I feel like Parasite winning Best Picture was a great representation of that, and people will return to that and remember that moment. And I feel like a film like Everything Everywhere would mark this moment in such a great way. Whereas I feel like The Fablemans is just kind of typically what we've seen win Oscars in the past. And I like it when things like Parasite win. It kind of breaks the mold a little bit. I mean, I just I still think Aftersun's going to get nominated and win everything. (laughs) Get the sweep. (laughs) Yeah. Din wasn't nominated for a single Golden Globe, but it will sweep the Oscars. Yeah. Well, and tonight, this Sunday, is a Critics' Choice Award, and uh, Stephanie Hsu is actually nominated in Supporting Actress. So I would love to see Stephanie Hsu get some love, because she has not been getting the same kind of love in the Supporting Actress category that Jamie Lee Curtis has. So I'm just saying. And I mean, I think, I, I, I feel like I said it on the show before, but see, like, Kihi Kwan is going to win the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, and he's like, he's sweeping all the award shows right now. And I said in the past, seeing him win an Oscar, I may cry because he's just so lovely, so wonderful. And his speech at the Golden Globes was so lovely and wonderful. Yeah. Award season, man. What a ride. (laughs) Let's talk about the movies we watched this week. Let's get into it. Okay. We got some mystery picks in the can this week, which I love to do. Make some progress on my watch list or just rewatch something that I really love. Um, So I had the first mystery pick of the week and I picked a film that there's kind of an interesting story about, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I picked the 2021 drama horror, apparently fantasy, because there's some superpowers, The Innocents. There are a lot of movies titled The Innocents, but this one is the 2021 film directed and written by Eskil Voigt. It stars Raquel Lenora Flotum, Flotum as Ida. Alva Brinsmo Ramstad as Anna, Sam Ashraf as Ben, and Mina Yasmin Bremseth Ashim as Aisha. Well done. They all have very long names, except for Sam Ashraf. Um, the synopsis for this one, if you've never heard of it, is during the bright Nordic summer, a group of children reveal their dark and mysterious powers when the adults aren't looking. In this original and gripping supernatural f- thriller, playtime takes a dangerous turn. Oh, damn. <laughs> Not wrong. Uh, So this film um, was getting some kind of buzz around when it first came out and Metro Cinema was playing it in the springtime uh, and we went to go see it when we were in between our last house and the house we live in now and we were living with my mom south of the city um, and we like went and had dinner and then we were going to go see the movie and then we got a call that our cat didn't like where he was staying and we had to come and get him (laughs) so we never saw it. Um, and I think that was the universe saying this was too dark of a movie to say see in a stressful time because I don't think this would have been a good movie to see mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah. Um, seeing it now, though, what did you think of The Innocents? Yeah, I mean, I was looking forward to seeing this last year. It was probably one of the horror movies I was looking forward to most because it was kind of buzzy at the time. Um, but I thought, I mean, first off, 
I thought that the kid actors were great in this. Really, really They did strong. a really amazing job. That said, I they did such a good job that I have never hated two kids more than I hated two kids in this movie. Oh my god. I I was livid with 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 two of with two of these characters in this movie. It's a theme this week. Yeah. Like there's I I was I was so frustrated. Not even. I was just angry at certain points in this, at just some of the actions and some of the decisions that these kids make. I just wanted to I just wanted to flick them real hard. <laughs> but this is a really really dark movie. This is very dark. This is we watched so many horror movies this week and you know, three of the f- no, we watched five, but three of the five that we watched had some of the most upsetting stuff I've ever seen, but all for different reasons. Yeah. This just was brutal. And yeah. I have to give a caveat. If you are listening and decide you want to watch this because we're talking about it, there's a really brutal scene of animal cruelty in this mm-hmm. involving a cat. Another reason why it was good we didn't see this. Yeah, when our <laughs> then, cat wasn't wasn't staying with yeah. us and was having a stressful time. But it was one of the most awful things I've ever seen. And I know that like we are like really big animal lovers and particularly cat lovers. But I just if you are somebody that is sensitive to cruelty towards animals or animal death on screen, be yeah. prepared. It's 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 not just like Oh, and then the dog was dead in the conjuring and we don't know why it happened. Like, it's awful. Yeah. I think that when it happened, I was just oddly like, that's it. Like, uh, I, that was just nailing the coffin for some characters for me. I'm just like, you can frick off. Yeah. It's really, really, really dark. But I will say, all of that just adds to how engaged I was in this movie. Like, I was leaning in the whole time. Because of just how bleak and brutal this whole this whole experience was, and some of the twists and turns that went through it, like I was nervous, I was scared, I was angry, but the whole time just intrigued. Yeah, Eskil Voigt. So he has worked. Don't have the fellow's name at the top of my mind right now, but with the director of Worst Person in the World and oh, Thelma? Joachim Trier. Yeah, that guy. Um, They've been like he's been the writer for a lot of Trier's directing films. Mm. And I Worst Person in the World is not my favorite movie in the world, but I loved Thelma. I liked Worst Person in the World, but I loved Thelma. Mm. And so there's something about Elskill Voigt's writing, the vibe that is created that I I'm really intrigued by. Yeah. And this being one that he's now directed. I thought he did a really phenomenal job like moving into writing and directing his own films. Mm-hmm. Um, he loves to have you sit in things, whether it's a vibe or a space or a mindset. He loves to just linger. And now, you know, you feel that in his writing, especially in those other films you mentioned. But now that he's directing immediately behind the camera, he's doing that within the structure of his film as well and there's so many shots because this kind of takes place in a apartment complex and there's a bunch of buildings around it feels very cold 
it and it feels very I, I don't know prison like is not necessarily the best description of it but it just feels so oppressive and the the buildings feel so tall and especially because we're focused on kids like everything seems grander than them so that also feels like the stakes of what happens with them is also heightened for some reason yeah he's a master of a certain vibe and it's not a vibe that's that's happy and nice it's just kind of like yucky it is pretty yucky um one of the things that like you and i haven't talked about on our own and sometimes we do talk about things before we sit down in front of microphones is the disability part of this which was one of the things that kept me back from this being a five-star movie for me Mm -hmm. um it's a tricky thing and you know particularly after the absolute dog shit mess that was sia's music which we have not seen and will not see but you know, that brought a lot of really important conversations to the forefront, and particularly around um, representations of autism in film and TV um, and who's playing those roles. So disability is like a pretty key part of this through the character of Anna, who has who has autism, is autistic. Um, and the actress who plays Anna does not have autism. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about that? Not great. That's kind of like the biggest thing. It's like the Hugh Dancy and Adam or whatever, you know? It's like whenever people play people with disabilities in films and don't have that disability themselves, there's always just this little red flag that comes up. And I'm just like, I don't I don't love that. And I don't love the idea of them getting better is a better version of them. Yeah, and that is a part of... There's two kind of disability tropes in this film that are troubling and that we've seen a lot in film and television and writing. So one is like the magical, like people with disabilities are magical in some way. Yeah. And you know, this is even in Midsommar, right? Like the idea of someone who is not neurotypical somehow has like a pulse on another plane that neurotypical people don't have. And I'm curious to what degree that title, The Innocence, is about somebody with autism. Yeah. As opposed to children. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, like, she is being presented as this ultimate innocent character. And it's, n- I don't know, it's tricky because I feel like there's moments of nuance within that that maybe push, like, in what a person might be tempted to think. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it, goes there enough to justify having this like magical autistic character Mm -hmm. um and then the other is is definitely what you're talking about which is the part of the narrative is about the person with a disability becoming cured and that and that's what we want so we see this in midnight mass with the character who's in a wheelchair can't remember any of those characters names um it's really it's a really common trope and it just furthers this idea that disability is the ultimate thing we don't want. Yeah. And that is troubling. We need different representations. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I I really liked this movie. But those were some things that kind of lingered in a not so great way for me. Yeah. Cause like I it's so it's so 
complicated for me too because I actually really I liked the character of Anna. Yeah, I did too. And I and I thought the kiddo, like uh Alva Brinsmo Ramstad, who I think she was pretty young when she did this, because I read that Eskil Voigt, um originally the characters of Ida and Anna were two boys, mm-hmm. and the character of Anna was 14, a 14-year-old boy, and that Voigt had written the character in that way because he thought it would be a pretty demanding and upsetting character to play. Mm. But he did like gender and color neutral casting, mm-hmm. um, so like anyone could audition for the role, which is, you know, an interesting thing that people talk about the pros and cons of that. Um, but in regards to this film, I thought that was really interesting because... I don't think the ages, genders, or ethnicities of the kids were as they were originally in the script. It was who he decided fit the character best when he had the actors come in. Mm-hmm. And I really did think all four kids did a phenomenal, oh, like yeah. some of the best kid acting I've ever seen. Now, granted, we don't speak Norwegian, mm-hmm. so it's yeah. possible that in for like a fluent uh, speaker of Norwegian. They might catch some acting moments that we don't. Yeah. But I was so like the kids are pretty much the only people on screen. There's like a handful of moments with adults. Mm -hmm. And I was gripped from start to finish. Oh, yeah. Like they absolutely nailed it. All those kids drew you in. And for having such a heavy, bleak and brutal story, they, they handled it so well and portrayed everything so well. I think one of the, for me, really phenomenal parts of this film, disability representation notwithstanding, mm-hmm. is it presents the idea that children are not inherently innocent. Yeah. And that, like, children are dark little beasts. Like, there's a degree to which this would pair well with hatching. Yeah. But hatching is so much about, like, how an experience with your parents or with other adults can turn you into a monster. Whereas this is just about how children are monsters. <laughs> yeah. Not all children, right? But let children are not inherently angelic, innocent creatures that children, just like people of any age can be horrible, can be violent, can be selfish, can be all of these things. And that mm-hmm. there's a spectrum and that I feel like the film is critiquing the idea of how we often like ascribe innocence to children yeah, and don't like, and therefore don't um, give them credit or ability to speak about like the difficulties of their worlds because we dismiss them as having simple worlds. Yeah. No, I think that's really well put because that's, that's just it. Like these little kids have their little feelings and their little brains and then, the way that the synapses fire in each of us is different when we're young. And I don't, I I think that's exactly it. We're not all good to our core until we become adults. Who we are starts when we're really young. And it shifts and grows and changes for better or worse throughout our entire lives. Exactly. So expecting that we're all the same until some prescribed age where all of a sudden the rotten ones become rotten and the good ones stay good or whatever. Yeah. Uh, is a little silly. Well, this film even explores the hypocrisy of that with Ida and Anna's mom in particular, who clearly sees Ida as a kid because puts these prescriptions on her of like, you can't do this. You ha- like, 
you have to come home at this time, all of this stuff. But then because her sister is autistic, she also then puts this responsibility on Ida to care for her sister when she doesn't, like when the mother doesn't want to or is too busy, therefore forcing her into these adult roles and then getting upset at her when she doesn't fulfill them the way the mother wants her to. A lot of parents I want to flick this week too. (laughs) My God. But I think that it is exploring in a really subtle way that the horror genre allows us to do so effectively this idea that parents can simultaneously expect such adult things of children while minimizing their thoughts, feelings, and capabilities and the complexity, darkness, and nuance of their inner worlds. And then in the very next breath, expect them to do something that's like not really acceptable to ask them to do. Yeah. Yeah, this movie challenged me. Yeah, a it's a, it's a, it is a challenging film yeah. for many different reasons. Well, and I think like in everything that we've talked about too, I feel like this movie also takes its moments to kind of explore the idea of family mm-hmm. for good and bad, showing mm-hmm. home lives of these kids and and the relationships that they have with their parents or guardians and how those decisions or that sort of home life can carve those paths for those kids to Mm -hmm. be the kind of kids that they are or how sometimes those kids can take a hard left turn from how those perceived households are Mm -hmm. yeah it's (laughs) the development of kids and who we become as people it's not black and white it's very complicated and complex so i feel like um something this film made me think of thematically was pet cemetery Mm. but pet cemetery is the very simple way of looking at it that like those kids were innocent until they were put into the cemetery. <laughs> right? yeah. Whereas this is saying like, like there's um, a particular device used in the film um, through the character of Anna uses a like, a, not an Etch-a-Sketch. Oh, oh, God. Like one of those, it's, it's what Joey and Chandler have on the back of their <laughs> door yeah, in France. I had one. I can't. Oh, man. It's like that blue thing and you write on it and then you can erase it. And you swipe it on the bottom. Yeah. yeah. Whatever that is. I don't know what it's called. And through that, like the film is literally critiquing the idea of tabla, tabula rasa, like that children are born as empty slates. Mm. And then we put into them who they will become. Like I look at our nibblings, we have four. And so much of who they are. And there's, you know, we've got a just about 11 year old, just about eight year old, just about four year old and a little over one year old. So much of who they are we've been able to see since they were less than one. Yeah. And then of course they're they're not stuck with that for life, but they shift and grow and, and change. And those parts of them are commingled in that. Yeah. They're not empty slates that we or their parents make into who they will become. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the film uses that really subtly through that, the wiping of that, whatever it's called. Yeah. But also, I really like that, but also it's real. That's really powerful in that you create something or you draw something on this, and if it's a representation of who you are in a moment or in your life or whatever it is, the aggressiveness of which you can just like swipe and it's all gone and it's erased. Like there, there, there is a lot of heft in that. Yeah, I think it's a pretty complex but subtle symbol used throughout the film. Yeah. That's real smart, Kylie. I, like. I, I am an English language arts teacher. It's real smart. So I do look for 
Well, I don't. I tell my students this all the time. I don't watch films or read books at home trying to analyze them from a literary standpoint. But sometimes, because that's what I do all day at work, I just can't help it. I'm just smart. I'm just so smart. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, this is a one dark, 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 brutal, brutal, brutal film that kind of sits with you and it's heavy and makes you think. It might be one to go to doesthedogdie.com and check out before you watch it. But how did the innocence make you feel? Uh, it made me feel pissed, upset, frustrated, angry, excited, but overall engaged. Um, yeah, I, I was really swept up in this movie and then, yeah, stuck with me. How about you? Just made me feel honestly deeply disturbed. Yeah, and uncomfy. Uncomfy. Indeed. Yeah. I'm really excited to talk about this next movie. Me freaking too. <laughs> So we watched the 1981 drama slash horror slash mindfuck that is Possession. It was directed by Andre Zulowski, written by Zulowski and Frederick Tutin. Uh, and it stars Isabella Adjani as Anna and Sam Neill as Mark and Heinz Bennett as Heinrich. The synopsis is a woman starts exhibiting increasingly disturbing behavior after asking her husband for a divorce suspicions of infidelity soon give way to something more sinister i've been wanting to watch this movie for a while it was playing at metro a long time ago and we, the stars just didn't align and we weren't able to go see it because yeah it was just a one night show yeah which is a bit of a bummer because i would have loved to have seen this in the theater um and then I wanted to, I've been, this has been very high on my list of wanting to watch it for a while, but it wasn't on any streamers. And yeah. then it dropped onto a streamer at the beginning of this week. I'm like, oh, hell yeah, we're watching Possession this week. Uh, so what do you think of Possession? So I, too, have been wanting to watch this forever. The poster is just so striking. Yeah. You hear the title. You see the poster. You hear people love it. And it kind of just burrows its way into your brain as something you know you want to watch so mm -hmm. i had actually borrowed this from our good friend Lori, who has the i'm sure if you are a frequent listener you've heard us say this many times but the most impressive horror movie collection i've ever seen in my life and who is the host of queer horror cult podcast um i borrowed a handful of films from her and this was one of them but i knew it was a bit slow and a bit strange and it's also pretty long. I think it's it's over a couple hours. Yeah, it's over two hours, I think. Um, and so I've had it actually since before it came onto Shutter, mm. and I just hadn't found the right night to pick it. So I, I borrowed those several months ago, I think, yeah. and I've just had it waiting. Um, but then when you picked it, I was so excited because I've been wanting to pick it too. The first thing I have to say is nothing prepared me for this. Nothing can. I did well. <laughs> Maybe we can. I didn't really know much about it, and I do think that's the best way to watch it. Mm -hmm. I'd seen a couple stills from back when it was at Metro, and it was like on social media, like they were promoting it. Um, that was last year. I think it was last year. So it's been a while. This was a friggin' roller coaster. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm pretty sure I watched most of this film with my mouth opened and my eyes just glued to the screen. Oh, yeah. Just like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I, 
So I've never ridden a roller coaster, but this is what I imagine it would be like. Where mm-hmm. like you finally feel like you've got a reprieve, and then ah, there's a sudden dip, and like, and yeah. then now I'm going upside down, and it's going really fast. And okay, now it's slowing down, and it's getting really fast again. Like the whole movie was just fucking bonkers. I have ridden a roller coaster, and it does feel like this. I have ridden the kids' roller coaster at Galaxyland. That's a good one. It's fun. But I feel like that's not what watching this movie is like. Um, yeah, this movie has stuck with me all week since we watched it. I, I think about it once a day, at least. This movie has stuck with me so much that I bumped my initial 4.5 to a 5. Yeah? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I think I might too, because the more I reflect on it, the more I've watched some YouTube videos on it and some deep dives, and it's just, it's so interesting, and it's like even from the title itself, it can just mean so much. Like even going into it before watching it, like possession, you know, there's kind of the the taking over of one's body or owning something, and th- like when you put pres- when you possess something, it feels like you don't. It's like you have something, but by force, mm-hmm. and it's it's an unkind way of owning something or taking over something. It's it's an excellent title. Um. But it's for as much of a mind fuck as it is and, and a, an experience, a visual and auditorial experience as it is, it's such a simple story that Zulowski wanted to tell. Yeah, by the end of it, I was like, did I understand it or not? And I actually think what all of these images and experiences and visuals, so I said images and visuals, I'm just, ugh. Um, <laughs> it's a beautiful film in an ugly way. Mm, yeah. What they're, the story they're telling is actually pretty simple at its core. And I think most people, unfortunately will either experience this personally or as a byproduct of other people. Mm. And I think both you and I can speak to that. Yeah. And I think interestingly, I mean, this movie, it's it's just, it's fundamentally about divorce. It's fundamentally about the breakdown of a relationship and the ugliness and anger and frenetic collapse of self mm-hmm. that occurs because of that. And I think you really witnessed that when your parents split up. Oh, yeah. Like this, you heard and saw things that, this film maps directly onto now i'm sure that was the case with my parents but i was 12 and they hid that pretty well Mm -hmm. and i think by the time my parents decided to officially separate the process of not being together had been going on for about eight years and i just wasn't aware of it and so i think maybe a lot of that ugliness had been when i was too young to have really witnessed it and maybe it's burrowed within my subconscious i don't know Mm -hmm. but I think to what I was even tangentially a witness to when your parents split up in this movie. Yeah. I mean, obviously this movie is very much hyper exaggerated. Yeah. It's very heightened, but, but that's what it feels like. There were moments in that experience that felt this heightened. Oh yeah. I mean, just the, the emotion, the emotional roller coaster and the, the, what felt like viciousness and just the rawness um, and the anger and the sadness that existed in, especially in the immediate aftermath of everything going down with my family 
I feel like was on full display here of mm-hmm. just what that feels like. And then as a as the child in a family where that's happening between your parents, you feel so you pull you're pulled into the storm that exists between the two of them, but then you're also having to deal with your own storm of emotions that's happening within you and where finding your place in that and setting the boundaries and trying to set boundaries and you know, maybe not, not even having the language that exists to knowing what those boundaries are or anything, it can, I can only imagine, you know, I went through it as an adult, but going through something like this as a, as a child, it's, it's, it could be even more complicated. Was there any degree though, when you were watching this film, because I do think your experience of the separation of your parents is more akin to this the experience of watching this movie than mine was. Was there any degree to which you identified with the character of Bob, even though he is a child? Because I do feel like during that experience, there was a lot of moments where your own agency was taken from you and you were kind of thrust back into a childlike role as a 20-something-year-old. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean... You just feel, you feel out of control. Mm-hmm. Like everything's out of, you, out of, everything is out of your control and everything that's happening with your parents, it's happening between them. But when, when they start looking for, um, you know, when they, when it's not immediately between them, they start turning to you and pulling you into it in ways that you maybe didn't expect or think about. And then, like you said, that kind of takes your agency away and you have to find ways. I mean, I started going to therapy (laughs) to help regain. Bob makes other choices. (laughs) To uh, learn to get that agency back and how to find the ways to set those boundaries, but also to cope with what is going on, um, which isn't available to to children. No. And I mean, a kid can't make that decision. In that respect, my experience as a 12-year-old whose parents were essentially going through this process from the time I was four until the time I was 12. And then, of course, divorce doesn't happen one day and it's over. Mm-hmm. Forever. Goddamn. Um, was more akin to that. But this is what I freaking love about horror and particularly like absurdist, surreal, experimental horror is... The ability to take these everyday experiences and use the genre to explore. And heighten. But like this is what it feels like. Yeah. It feels that heightened. Um, It's just such a great genre for that. And to get into the horror of it, like this is icky. (laughs) It's upsetting. It's very visceral. It's very primal. Yeah. In like an animal way. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about primal in another horror movie, but in a different way later. It's very, it was like animalistic, raw. There's a scene in this, which might be my favorite scene in anything I've ever seen, to say the scene, the word scene a million times. And I went to work the next day and made Ashley watch just that scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I changed my wallpaper on my iPhone to that scene. I'm obsessed with it. It was so good that as soon as the movie ended, we YouTubed that scene just watched to it watch it again. Yeah, I am absolutely obsessed. And films like Midsommar and Julia DeCormer's work in like Raw and 
Titan seem so directly inspired yeah. by this film, um, indebted to this film. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get, interestingly, I didn't have any Twin Peaks effect with this. I just felt like, mm-hmm. man, this film probably did it even better than those. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, as much as I can see the influence this has clearly had on so many things I love now, this still felt really innovative. Mm-hmm. It felt really unlike anything I had ever seen before. Yeah. 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 And to have it feel, to have it be such a wild ride, but still feel so personal and to have such a connection to something like this feels really special. And I didn't, like, I just really didn't know much about it. So yeah, I got to be really uh, surprised by some of the things in it. One of the things I was very surprised by is that Sam Neill was in it. Oh, man, he is serving magician's body realness yeah, in this. That was the other thing I was surprised by. I did not know that he had a magician's body. Yeah. But goddamn, if Sam Neill does not have a magician's body. Um, he was great in it. Really upsetting. Really didn't like him. <laughs> yeah. And I've never, I don't think I've ever seen Isabella Ajani in anything, but goddamn, is she beautiful? Like, she was, holy moly. She was simultaneously terrifying, concerning, and sexy. <laughs> yeah. She both. She's like a siren. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a great way of putting it. In one moment, she is just absolutely terrifying, but also. Why aren't you giving me a kiss? <laughs> and I totally understand why this was picked for Not Your Final Final Girl. That's what it played at. Phenomenal for that. I can't wait to watch this again and again and again. I'm for sure going to watch this once a year. Yeah. Yep. And it was, um, do you know it was banned in the 80s for being a video nasty? Video nasty? Do you not know that term? No. Video nasty? Um, let me, I, I do know about video nasties, but I want to get it, uh, right. First of all, what do you think of that term? Video um, nasty. I'm kind of sad. I mean, not knowing what it means yet. I feel like that would be, that would have been a great name for this podcast. Video nasty. I'm sure there are many podcasts named video nasty. So a video nasty is a colloquial term. I'm just reading the Wikipedia page, uh, popularized by the national viewers and listeners association in the United Kingdom to refer to a number of films, typically low budget horror or exploitation films distributed on video cassette that were criticized for their violent content by the press, social commentators, and various religious organizations in the early 1980s. These videos release releases were not brought before the British Board of Film Classification due to a loophole in film classification laws that allowed videos to bypass the review process. The resulting uncensored video releases led to public debate concerning the availability of these films to children due to the unregulated nature of the market. I mean, okay, but I just think the term video nasties is real cute. Oh, it's great. Yeah, no, it's really, really, really good. But it was uh, coined a video nasty. Damn. Um, and, I, and it was banned um, in the 1980s, but then it was approved by the film board in 1999. And now it's on Shutter. If ever there was a time to get a free trial of Shutter, it would be early February yeah. to watch this and another film we're going to talk about. And then if you don't want to keep Shutter, cancel it after. But stay because of we've mentioned the documentaries they have about horror movies and the horror genre. And there's a bunch of classic shit on there. Shutter is just getting better and better. I remember when we first heard about it years ago, 
it was like, okay, like there's a couple of things we want to see on there. They've stepped up their game since, and now they're producing some really great horror stuff. Yeah, it's I excellent. like Shudder. Um, one more thing I wanted to touch on, and it says this in the opening credits, so I don't feel like it's a spoiler, but there are some practical creature effects that exist in this film that absolutely stop me in my tracks. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I would encourage anyone who knows very little about possession but is willing to watch a very surreal very nasty very violent but yet beautiful rhythmic almost like the film is almost like a modern dance mm. like i feel like the new suspiria is really indebted to this film yeah but if if any of that sounds like something you might want to watch look nothing else up about this film yeah because when you see some of these things for the first time and haven't seen stills of them oh boy so it's like when I first watched Eraserhead, not knowing what a certain thing looked like. Yeah. Just knocked me off my feet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This this to me, watching this was very similar to watching Eraserhead in that I didn't really know anything about Eraserhead other than the guy's hair. Yeah. And this, I didn't really know anything about it <laughs> at all. You're right. That's all I knew about Eraserhead, too. It's just the guy's <laughs> He has some funky hair it's in a kind of, head. It's just like what my hair looks like at like 9 p.m. on a weeknight. <laughs> you do have major racer head hair energy a lot of the time. Um, but I, and again, another story that just has like this kind of, I mean, it is tied up in David Lynch-isms, but also has just kind of a very core, very real feeling human thing that people experience. Yeah. And yeah. hopefully we will experience neither eraser head nor possession in our relationship <laughs> yes thankfully um yeah this movie was excellent like what what a triumph and the way that you've described described the like the way that it feels like a dance or it feels like a roller coaster ride it does like the camera movements feel so choreographed and it just the whole thing draws you in and it just doesn't let up it's incredible go watch possession how did it make you feel? It made me feel magnificently mind blown. Uh, yeah. Um, it made me feel like my brain was melted and uh, excited to watch and experience it over and over again. All right. Another one I'm excited for. I love this one, too. <laughs> <laughs> this was another one. This in Possession and, of course, many other films are ones that, like, the first time I watched them, I've only seen Possession once. But on first watch, I didn't fully get to that like five out of five. Mm -hmm. And then the more I sat with it. You got there. Yeah. It just like it wouldn't let me go. Yeah. I love this movie so much. <laughs> um, and we're not the only people. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We watched 2019 film Drama or Romance. The fact that I am willing to give a five out of five to a romance is very strange for me. But this is a totally different kind of romance. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Directed and written by one of our absolute favorites, Celine Sciamma, starring Noemi Merlon as Marianne, Adele Anel as Eloise, and Luana Badrami as Sophie. Synopsis for this is on an isolated island in Brittany at the end of the 18th century, a female painter is obliged to paint a wedding portrait of a young woman. We saw this film for the first time at home. Yeah. And then I don't know if it was just because there's like gay ladies in it but you proceeded to like buy me a bunch of portrait of a lady on fire it's so funny like i feel like we saw it we gave it four and a half out of five 
and then proceeded to decorate our whole house <laughs> with its wares. Yeah. But mostly from <laughs> you. Like I had a whole birthday gift that was Portrait of a Lady on Fire themed. Like you got me the theatrical poster and framed it. You got me the Criterion edition. And I'm like, this wasn't my favorite movie of all time. But because it's gay, you're like, here's all this stuff. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> good predictions because now it is one of my favorite movies of all time. I just had to sit with it and sit with I mean, I loved it the first time we watched it. But the second time elevated it into absolute favorite status. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were so, so excited when we heard that Metro Cinema was playing this and we would get a chance to see it on the big screen. And we went and saw it and we took our friend Ashley, who we've mentioned a lot in this episode, and she's been on the show a couple of times and she'll be on the show more. Um, but I was particularly excited to take her. If you've listened to any of the episodes that she's in, then you know that she is an artist and an art teacher. And so getting to take her to this film that's about art. She also really likes period pieces and it's a period piece. Mm-hmm. And she likes gay ladies too. So it was perfect. It was really exciting. What did you think of Portrait of a Lady on Fire? Um, I was so excited to revisit this. Like you said, the first time we saw it, I was blown away by its grace and its power that it had. Um, and then seeing it again, it it rocketed it up to a five. Because yeah, it was sitting at a four point five. It is much better than that. Yeah. <laughs> it is it is incredible. It's just yeah, it's so Beautiful. Celine Skiyama is a magnificent storyteller. One of the best in the game right now, mm-hmm. I think. And she's only getting better. I mean, um, what, what was it, her film? Water Lilies? Yeah, that's her debut film. And we watched that some episodes back. Yeah. So going from that and then she wrote My Life is a Zucchini. There's a couple other films of hers we haven't seen yet. But this and then Petite Maman. Like you can just see her progressively getting better and better. I mean, but I wouldn't say that Petite Mama is better than this. I think actually most people would say they think Portrait of a Lady on Fire is better. But I think she's becoming, or I think she is not becoming, but she just knows her craft and she knows what she wants to do. And she's now focusing on different things. Like Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Petite Mama are so different and yet so fundamentally a part of the same like exhibition. Like they're, You know what I mean? Like they follow a same emotional through line. They have a same feeling about them. Well, maybe it's not better and better, but maybe it's just for me as more I see more of her stuff, the more hype I get yeah, for you. Yeah. yeah, She gets better and better for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, a lot of people like Portrait of a Lady on Fire is just universally considered one of the best films ever made. And there's been a lot of discourse about this recently because it made it onto the sight and sound best film best hundred films of all time and some people were very angry about that because it's too new it's very new (laughs) and those people can kick rocks i remember seeing on twitter somebody being like what the hell happened i thought yesterday we loved portrait of a lady on fire very banshees of inishirin of it like Mm. oh, oh because it's on the top 100 we don't like it anymore yeah no it's an it's a phenomenal film and it deserves its place there because it's, you can, you just, you know, when you watch it, that this is going to be one of the greatest films of all time for as long as humans exist. Yeah. It, it, truly. I mean, something that I really love about Celine Skiyama's storytelling, and specifically in this movie, is that she loves to tell quiet stories that pack an emotional punch. And 
in her quiet storytelling, especially in this film, she loves to spend time and focus the time on the characters and the things that the characters are going through. And it feels very thoughtful and contemplative and what, and, and wants to explore the kind of the intricacies that exist within a look or Mm. exist within tiny moments that I, I feel like, a, I feel like many films might choose to brush past or not want to linger on. And I really appreciate that about this film is that it wants to linger in those, in those smaller moments. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's where the painting, the idea of painting is like this central motif throughout the film of like, what do we look at? How do we remember? What do we create? Um, Celine Sciamma has talked about part of what she wanted to show here is a dismantling of the idea of the muse. Mm-hmm. And I, I showed this to Ashley because she teaches art and she is an artist. Um, and it was a, a little piece of writing by Celine Sciamma where she talked about how she wanted to show that it's not just the artist. It's also the other person and voice in the room who is a co-creator of the piece in in being the person who a portrait is being made of. I also love the different ways you can read the title depending on the intonation you put. Yeah. Like it is either a portrait of a lady who is on fire or it is a portrait of a lady and that portrait of the lady is on fire. Well, and I noticed this time that both occur in the film. Yeah, both of those readings are within the film. Yeah. And so I love how Celine Sciamma's work, it just gets richer the more you watch it because it doesn't hold your hand and tell you exactly what to think. And I think part of the quietness of the film demands that you have your own readings yeah, or put your own emotions into it. Um, and yet on a second watch or what I'm sure we'll have third, fourth, fifth, so on watchings of this. And, and certainly we're going to revisit Petite Mama. You can draw these connections and see these layerings and these subversions of even the her own motifs and symbols that she's put into the film such that there isn't one simple reading of it or mm-hmm. there isn't one concrete reading of it. And I think that what she does so well is the messiness and unresolved elements of life put into these quiet moments and it's mm-hmm. simultaneously beautiful and heartbreaking. Yeah. And going and going back to what you were saying that I feel kind of exaggerates that or lets you linger in that is that idea of painting and the patience that goes into that but from both sides. The person that's being painted has to sit and hold a pose and can't move and is just kind of at the whims of the artist who, again, has to have their own form of patience of with both the subject, but also with what their process is or however their approach is to painting. And it's observed so beautifully in this. Like we see Celine Sciamma chooses to, to just stay on. Oh, what's, what's our, what's our main character's name? Nomi Merlant. Marianne. Yeah. Um, Just to focus on Marianne's hands 
when she is using the artist palette or starting to prep her canvas or uh, start, like starting her initial sketching. I, I love that there's a lot of focus on the sketching. Like we almost see more shots of her initial sketching of things than we do of her actually painting things. And so this was really interesting and it was a bit of a fear of mine taking Ashley to this is like, <laughs> what if they didn't do the art stuff right? Because I'm a big dummy. I don't know. I don't <laughs> yeah. know anything about art. Um, and all of the paintings were done by one artist. Helene Delmer is her name or probably Helene Delmer. Um, and it's her hand we see throughout the film. Yeah. But she worked with Noemi Merlant about to make sure that when we have the shots like from behind the canvas where we see Marianne painting that her sight lines are correct. Like what she's uh, looking at is correct. Smart. And Ashley said, yeah, all the painting stuff is. And she said she's she's seen like films and other things where like they get it so wrong. And she mm -hmm. said, no, this was all perfect. So it's really, really cool. And um, the artist who did it 16 hours a day, that's how much work she was doing. Um, and I guess originally Adele and Elle had asked to have some of the work, but then they donated it all. Like as as a group, they agreed that that was the best thing to do. That's so cool. Um, yeah, it is just, it's phenomenal. And then one of the things that I really love about this film and that I always am drawn to in, in any work of art is when you take something that's traditionally a part of a piece of that medium and you do something different with it or you remove it or you place limitations. And so something that Celine Sciamma does is there's no score in this film. Hmm. So the only time we hear music is if a character is playing it, mm -hmm. singing it or hearing it. Um, and she specifically said that that was an intentional choice to have no score so that rhythm and music would have to come from somewhere else. And her goal was for the movements to be like that music to come from the movement of the body. I get that. And then the movement of the camera. Mm. So camera movement and and the actor's body movement within the film becomes the music and becomes the rhythm. It becomes the score that keeps us temporally situated within the rhythm of the film. Yeah. And it's done really well. There is a rhythm to the shots, to the transitions, to the movements of the characters within the film that does create a sense of music without sound. Yeah. I never thought of it that way, but thinking back to it now, yeah, I mean, it's created within the the painting, within the way they move, because everybody's kind of wearing like these long sort of dresses throughout the whole thing. So there is that sort of rhythm and flow to how the characters move, but also in nature. We spend a lot of time at the beach. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's, there's the water, there's, there's the wind. wind. Yeah. And this movement between long shots mid shots and extreme close ups mm -hmm. done with very purposeful transitions creates a rhythm like thinking of music when you might go from staccato to like a swelling orchestral moment like that is done through the camera and there yeah. is no score to guide our emotional response that's yeah. hard. Like oh, yeah. the score is used to tell us how to feel. And this film trusts that we will get it anyway and then put some of ourselves into it too. Yeah. And I think that is so brilliant. And that is why it is right now considered one of the best hundred films of all time. And I don't think 
that anyone has the right to take that away from it. Yeah. It's such a purposefully crafted movie, so purposefully crafted that you can not even realize how purposefully crafted it is when you're watching it because you're just swept away in it. Well, that's just it. I mean, I didn't think about that. And I feel like most people probably don't think of that, but it exists mm-hmm. for everybody. That's what the filmmakers wanted to get across. And it, it gets across whether you're conscious of it or not. I mean, I feel like the best example of what you're describing is the first time that we see Heloise. Ugh. It's one of the best introductions to one of the most gorgeous people in the world. <laughs> There's just so many shots and scenes in this film that I would say are some of the best of all time that like, I can't even start because it's all like the final scene is one of the best final scenes I've ever seen in anything ever. Oh, it hit me like a brick this time. And so that's really like what's so phenomenal about this too is Celine Sciamma has said like she's spoken a lot about this film and she speaks so eloquently about her purposeful intention with what she creates she said that she wanted to simultaneously create a film that shows what it's like to fall in love Mm. and that at the same time shows what it's like to reflect on a past connection nailed it and that's what makes this such a rich second viewing because like in After Sun, <laughs> sorry to always bring up After Sun, we get put into the shoes of reflection mm-hmm. that we cannot be in the first time because we don't yet know where this is going by the end. But because we know where it's going by the end, we become the characters. We, we are in their point of view where the film is both a reflection and a memory and a first time. Yeah. And that is so like, how can you accomplish both of those things at once? I mean, I think Celine Sciamma has done this brilliantly in terms of romantic connection. And I think Charlotte Wells with After Sun has done that so brilliantly in terms of um, parent child. Yeah. And memory. This is this. It is about memory, but this isn't as much. It's more about feeling. And I think After Sun is more about memory specifically. Yeah. But these both accomplish kind of a similar thing for me emotionally. This time around, I was really, really, really struck by the character of Sophie. Yeah. Yeah, and me too. The fact that this film is not just about romantic connection. Yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, her whole story is really phenomenal. And there's a moment where I was like, I, I'm, I think I'm going to go off to a lesbian separatist community. <laughs> I think I'm by Elliot. <laughs> I'm going like it just seems so lovely. <laughs> but this is also one of the saddest movies ever. It's just it's sexy, it's sad, it's beautiful, it's stunning, it's happy, it's it's all of the things. It's just so good. Yeah. I I agree with you though. Sophie was a big standout for me this time, especially the dynamic between Sophie and Marianne. Mm-hmm. Um I re- I really love their dynamic and I feel like it was I appreciated it more. I saw it more and it affected me a lot more on, on the second viewing. You're totally right. The second viewing just helps with reflection. Which is actually where all of the characters are the whole film. We just don't know it. Yeah. Right. That like, I mean, there's a term I use and it's not, I didn't create this term when I teach and I'm trying to explain to my students that they need to write essays in present tense and it's called the literary present. So, that work of art always exists in the present because we can return to it and the events happen over again, right? So a film is always simultaneously in the past and in the present, but never more so than on a subsequent viewing. Mm -hmm. Because you now, like the characters, 
have experienced this all and are now experiencing it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is just, I've never quite understood people who don't rewatch or reread things. Right. Because I see so much power in what it's like to revisit something knowing what's going to happen. And I also just think it's a testament to why art exists that depending on the context, the conditions, your emotional state, what's going on in your life, that when you watch or read or engage with or listen to certain works of art, they have a different impact on you on each different day. And not everything. Like I'm sure Captain America, the first Avenger doesn't really hit me differently anytime I watch it. But for the most part, yes. Oh yeah. And and there's just so many fat yeah, you're right. Like and there's so many factors in your personal life that can contribute to that, you know? Like if we were having a really shit day, the day that we rewatched this, it could have totally impacted the experience we had. Yeah, like how tired you are, how hungry you are, you know, what's going on emotionally for you, the conditions of the watching of it. So that's one of the things. Like this is such a quiet movie and it was pretty busy at metro and the audience was so so quiet (laughs) um but there was a really busy event film happening after this that um the lobby started filling up about 45 30 minutes to the end of this film and it was so loud in the lobby and you could hear it in it during the watching of this film and that was a real shame yeah. because it really detracted from the ability to be as immersed in this as Celine Sciamma has so carefully crafted for you to be. But yet it's such a stunning film to see on the big screen. Yeah. This is a conundrum, a paradox that we're going to have to explore in another film this week that there's something incredibly special and needed about the big screen with it. And yet the risk on the big screen is that outside influences (laughs) whether it's audience members traffic on the street what's going on in the lobby might detract from your ability to be immersed in it yeah so anyway i could literally talk about portrait of a lady on fire forever and i truly think this is one that we will have to do a deep dive on in future Mm -hmm. because i want to talk so much more about it but how did portrait of a lady on fire make you feel incredibly grateful for this beautiful story and uh it also made me feel butterflies in my tummy whenever i saw adele hanel on on screen because she uh she a pretty lady she is a pretty lady (laughs) how about you um it made me feel heart achy in both the sweetest and saddest ways simultaneously Mm -hmm. and both for what's happening on the screen and the fact that I, like you, have a very big crush on Adele and all. She's just truly one of the most beautiful human beings that's ever existed ever in all time. And she's so... face is so sassy. Yeah. She's she's so grouchy, but also not. She's just salty and spicy and beautiful. I just just want to kiss her. And there's so many moments where she's like looking straight into the lens or at least close to it. And it's just like, Stop looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Celine Sciamma knows exactly what she's doing when she puts her on screen. <laughs> oh, 
Yeah. All right. Frick, that movie is so good. How did we watch like two of the very best movies ever made in the entire world this week? Back to back with two of the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> back to back. We're going in a different direction. So it was my mystery pick again. And Portrait of a Lady on Fire is the only non-horror film we watched this week. Oh my God, that's true. So we're going back to horror. <laughs> um, I picked the very buzzy film right now. Speak No Evil. It's a Shutter film. 2022 drama horror thriller. It's directed by Christian Taftrup and written by him and Mads Taftrup. Uh, it stars Morton Burian as Bjorn, Sid Selsiam Cook as Louise, Vedja Van Huyt as Patrick, Karina Smulders as Karen, Leva Forsberg as Agnes, uh, Marius Damslev as Abel. The synopsis, a Danish family visits a Dutch family they met on a holiday. What was supposed to be an idyllic weekend slowly starts unraveling as the Danes try to stay polite in the face of unpleasantness. I didn't know much about this film other than people seem pretty divided yeah. on how they feel about it, but a lot of people really love it. Um, and I'd also heard that it was pretty brutal gore-wise. Mm -hmm. um, or at least like I'd heard that it was pretty upsetting in some way. Yeah. And I'm usually like, okay, yeah, let's see, let's see. Oh, so I picked it. What did you think of Speak No Evil? Yeah, I mean, I was in the same boat. Didn't know much about it other than the poster that I saw at some point. Um, and that, yeah, it kind of, it, it hits a point where it just kind of gets kind of nuts. Um, but what I'll say about it is that it definitely gripped me from the start. And then I could very literally feel its grip loosening. Um, and then as the the things the the things which I assume people say like it, it kind of hits the point where it starts going getting nuts is its grip had totally kind of let go of me at that point. So this is the thing I find so I mean I think it's true of all film but something specific not specific, something particular to horror, like this is true of all films, but even more so in horror, is that I think both the conditions of when you see it, what you have heard about it before you see it, and the subjectivity of what you are afraid of makes your feelings about horror so particular. Yeah. So seeing something at home versus in the theater seeing it with friends versus by yourself, hearing that it's the scariest thing of all time or hearing that it's the dumbest thing of all time. And then like what you just personally are afraid of or like know about yourself can really impact what you come away from in a horror film. And I so understand why so many people were really bothered by this film in a way that they liked mm -hmm. or didn't like, but, but found impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I also see why so many people are moved and um, moved to introspection and conversation around the themes of this film. And I mean, it's in the synopsis, right? Like the staying polite in the face of unpleasantness is, is in the synopsis. And ultimately, that's really what this film is about is boundaries and the extent to which we will stand up for ourselves and others and moral integrity and um, how the social contract can get in the way of that yeah 
But that's what made it tricky for me because I personally am someone who has a lot of trouble upholding my boundaries with friends and family, but not at all with strangers or casual acquaintances. Yeah. Like that's what I work on in therapy is how do I hold firm to my boundaries with my immediate family or with my friends, even when it's simple things like I need to go home (laughs) or, um, Yes, I'd really like to see you, but I know I'm going to be stressed out that night, so I need the night to myself. Like, that's where I feel guilt is when it's people I love and I do want to see. Mm-hmm. I feel no guilt <laughs> with strangers or acquaintances. Yeah. Like, with those folks, I'm just waiting for them to break the social contract so that I have a chance to say what I really feel. Yeah, yeah. And so, on that level, this film didn't work for me because I am not the Danes. Yes. I'm just I'm just not like that. Um, you are a little bit more. Yeah, I definitely have a bit more of that. And that is the work that I'm doing in therapy of being less like that and putting starting to put forth those boundaries and understand those boundaries. I'm not perfect at it. No, but not, nobody. But in the, in the scenarios that exist in this movie, I would be perfect at it because <laughs> Fuck some of that stuff. <laughs> well, so this was... I'm going to give a very, 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 very slight spoiler. Because I feel like it's necessary to this conversation about why this film didn't work for us, even though it has worked for so many people. Is one of the first ways... One of the first unpleasantnesses, as the synopsis says, is that um, the character of Louise is established as a vegetarian early on in the film. So for context, if you don't know us personally, we are also vegetarian and we have been for, what, a decade now? Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. We lived by the mall back when we started being vegetarian and that was ages ago. Yeah. Uh, And then, so this character who's established as vegetarian, this other family makes a meal with meat and then makes her eat it because they made it. But all in a very like, Oh, come on, just try it. Oh, we made this. Just try it. And she does. Out of not wanting to be rude. Out of not wanting to be rude. And for me, as a vegetarian, I would never do that. And it was one of the first moments where they're trying, like the film is looking to convince us of like how we might also crumble in a moment where we're like because of social politeness. Yes. And I would never. (laughs) in that particular scenario right i'm like no i have not eaten an animal in a decade yeah i don't care if you made meat i will eat the sides or i will eat nothing yeah but i'm not going to eat that and And like i'm your guest like and it's it's just as rude for you to make me eat something i don't want to eat yeah that's just it like if i say if i politely say oh thank you but i'm vegetarian so no thank you if you get pissed about it that's your problem. And if you're going to be a fucking asshole for the rest of the night, I'm going to leave. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so like that, the movie lost us there. I think, yeah. And this was something I reflected on later because I'm like, so many people really liked this movie and are really speaking highly to the way that it explores the themes that it explores and the themes that it explores around boundaries and social politeness and integrity, I think are important themes. And as we've talked about with possession um, and the innocence like horror is such a wonderful genre to explore these things in 
And I was like, why didn't this film work for me? And then afterwards, I was like, it's it lost me right there. Yeah. And that was so early in the film. Because from that point on, I couldn't I couldn't connect anymore. I was like, I have been in that situation. I've literally been in a situation where someone doesn't like. I really hope no one in my family is listening to this, but <laughs> we. My family used to pre covid have a um, family reunion mm-hmm. every summer. And Man, I just know the story you're going to tell. <laughs> and um, many of the people there either don't remember or don't know that we're vegetarians. And no one else in my, uh, that's not true, actually. My brother's pescatarian and um, my sister-in-law is, or our sister-in-law is um, vegetarian. Mm-hmm. But I don't think she was around for that particular family so reunion. And my brother was not yet pescatarian at that time. So at the time, we're the city slickers, as they call us. Non-meat eaters. Non-meat eaters. And my aunt had made baked beans, but they had pork in them. So she proceeded to hand pick the pork out of the baked beans that she'd made and then want us to eat them because she'd taken the pork out. And I still didn't eat it. I said, no, I was very polite about it. I just said, no, 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 thank you. I'm not going to eat that. And she got pretty upset. She was like, well, I went to all this work to pick the meat out of it. And I said, I didn't ask didn't you ask to do you that. To. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I've literally been in situations as strange as that one and upheld my determination and my commitment to not eating animals. You can't get mad at me because you're a bad communicator. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. So the movie lost me there. And I can see how if the movie didn't lose you until like it it reaches more and more hyperbolic levels of no one would allow that boundary to be crossed. But if you had been convinced all along the way of like, yeah, I could see myself doing that. I could see myself doing that. I could see myself doing that. Then it's probably actually going to hit pretty hard when it's like, oh, the movie is exploring how when we incrementally allow these smaller things we might reach a point where it's too late to stop the bigger things and i think it's actually done really 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 well totally yeah and i can see how it worked for so many people but i'm guessing it didn't work for a lot of vegetarians like (laughs) that like that's just it is it's funny because that moment happened and it wasn't until you and i were kind of debriefing after the movie that i realized for myself too that that was the moment that lost me because that moment happened then a few more things happened and I, I looked over to you while we we're watching it and I'm just like I'm starting to wonder if this is a cultural thing or if our main characters are just idiots and it's trying to critique something bigger and that was um one of our friends Zach who lives out in Toronto he had watched this a lot before us and he didn't like it and he said I don't trust people I never would get myself in this situation and so again that, yeah. I think the degree to which you can see yourselves in the characters impacts how much you can enjoy this film to a to a degree yeah um and because this movie had been pretty hyped i also was pretty underwhelmed by the ending but i want to put a caveat that i can see why the ending is so upsetting to so many people it's just one of the things that happens is absolutely brutal but i've seen it happen elsewhere more brutally yeah and to that point too, I feel this movie as a whole, in addition to those moments, it just reminded me of movies and shows with similar premises and events that were executed much better and resonated with me more yeah. strongly. Um, like I went, I went to 
Funny Games or The Strangers or The Leftovers. And those are three things that I really love and have returned to multiple times. I mean, The Strangers is pretty wah-wah, but we, we really like it. But I've that's just it. I've watched The Strangers more than once. Yeah, and I still like it. I wouldn't watch this more than once. No, and so all of the things I just said, it's, horror is so subjective, and I, and I do think there's so many people who would really, 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 really like this movie. Yeah. And I do think the themes are really interesting. But one part that I just, like, isn't subjective to me is that at the end of this film, I had so many questions about the how did that happen? How how are they getting away with it? Like, who was this character? Like, what the hell was going on with that? Yeah. And I'm not really that person. Like, I can suspend my disbelief pretty darn well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm usually like, oh, yeah, I guess that is a plot hole when someone tells me that. But I was I felt very much like I did at the end of Don't Worry Darling, where I'm like, well, what was with that plane? And okay, but why did they create a Oh, I can't let be a spoiler. Like, but why did they do this if they're trying to do this? And then and I felt that way about the ending to this film and the questions it left with me. And I kind of just wish they had either committed to full on surreal. Like as it got more heightened and heightened, I wish they'd like really pushed that in a funny games way. Yeah. Or it had like Home Alone style filled in every plot hole. So I felt like this was believable because I'm like, I've listened to too many true crime podcasts and there's no way you could get away with this. <laughs> like, I love that Home Alone is kind of the standard for filling in the, plot, in the plot holes when you're like, I know that this is a thing that people are going to have difficulty suspending their disbelief with. So I'm going to have to make sure that I've made it realistic. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I totally agree. I think that it challenged me on, and made me realize where my limits are in terms of suspension of disbelief. Yeah. Uh, I just couldn't suspend my disbelief for this one. No, no, me neither. I, I, and it's, Zach put it really well. I, I just feel like because of who I am and my relationship to other people and strangers, I, th- this wouldn't happen to me. Therefore, I could not get fully immersed into the story. But like we've said, I can totally see where people would be the opposite end of the scale yeah. and it would challenge them. And, and they would see themselves in it and it would totally create some probably pretty powerful introspection and conversations. And and it, we've had great conversations after seeing this movie just for different reasons. We, uh, we were heated up. We were fired up after this. Like you yeah. and I like sat there like just yelling at each other <laughs> <laughs> yelling at each other about the movie yeah 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 yeah, <laughs> like, yeah it, uh, and, and the thing is it's well acted it's well shot it's like the score is good i i mean i guess it wants you to know from the get-go that like things are nefarious because it's got the like nefarious score from like the opening scene basically yeah um like everything about it is well made I think it just is either going to work for you or it's not. And I don't see a lot of in between. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And personally, it didn't work for me. Mm, Me neither. And uh, I think anyone who has listened to this podcast for every episode full well knows I have no qualms about going up to a stranger and say, get off your phone at the movie theater or your talking is disrupting me. So... No, the social contract. I'm like, if you're not upholding the social contract, I don't have to uphold the social contract. Yeah. And I'm still pretty nice about it. Yeah. But I'm not going to let you. I, I want to let you know that you aren't upholding the social yeah, contract. Yeah, yeah. 
We both have to do it for it to be a contract. I'm going to gently know that you're being a dick. Yeah, that's pretty much (laughs) what I do. Just just so you know, I'm moving because I can see your phone. (laughs) You reflect on that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So this movie was not made for me. Not made for the vegetarians or vegans in the house. Unless you are a vegetarian who would eat meat because you feel bad that someone made it. In which case, you're not my kind of person. I'm sorry. (laughs) Really apologies. But not not for me yeah. um how did speak no evil make you feel just frustrated and annoyed <laughs> yeah and and yeah just tested <laughs> yeah not for me oh you um it made me feel infuriatingly frustrated yeah, yeah, yeah. like i i mean it accomplished something because i have never felt more angry at characters Ever. Well, that's just it. And I felt like it couldn't get worse after The Innocence, where I mentioned there were characters I wanted to flick super hard. I wanted to punt some of these guys in this movie. I wanted to strangle them. Yeah. Yeah, it was um, some very, very frustrating watching. But I mean, it evoked a response from us. So that's up. And I do think there's lots of people who would really like it. Totally. I mean. And I'm not saying that they would be wrong for doing so. I think there's a lot of merit in this film. It just didn't work for me. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it's the discourse is very divisive. If you're even at all interested, that's what we're here for. We're a film recommendation podcast. Didn't work for us, might work for you. And I'd be so interested to talk to people who it did work for about why, because I I really do think it has it comes down to who you are. Yeah. So after you're not an asshole like me, it probably worked for you. (laughs) (laughs) But if you've seen it or going to see it, hit us up on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Let us know your thoughts and how it affected you. Okay, next movie. Probably one of the most anticipated movies of the year. Yeah. For a lot of people, but for us particularly. Yeah. So we had the chance to go see a sold out screening at Metro Cinema of the 2022 horror film Skinamarink. It was directed and written by fellow Edmontonian Kyle Edward Ball. It stars Jamie Hill as mom, Lucas Paul as Kevin, Ross Paul as dad, and Dolly Rose Tetro as Kaylee. This has one of the best synopsis I've read in a long ass time. I sent this in my movies and TV work chat and sent the trailer and People were ghost face emoji in me like crazy. Um, two children wake up in the middle of the night to find their father is missing and all the windows and doors in their home have vanished. Like that's one of those. Can you tell me a scary story in one sentence? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, so excited for this. Like I said, it was sold out 500 people in the crowd and then it was followed by a Q&A by filmmakers and stars of the film because this was made by an Edmontonian in Edmonton for with all Edmonton people with all Edmonton people for 15 grand. And the fact that it's getting as much buzz as it's getting is just really cool. Yeah. We've never had the chance to experience. This is a local film that is no longer a local film. Like people have been watching it on letterbox sometimes illegally for months Yes. And they don't know it's from Edmonton. They don't know I'm from Edmonton. And I'm just like, this was made by somebody who lives here? 
Well, it's so, this is so cool. Well, it's so funny too, because before this was announced or got a wider release, we reached out to Kyle Edward Ball on Twitter because we wanted to, we were hearing the buzz and we wanted to get in on it. But and, we didn't want to pirate didn't, it. And didn't want to pirate it. So we're like, hey, listen, we have this podcast. We'd love to review Skin Rank. And he's like, stay tuned for just like a couple days. And then that's yeah. when it was uh, widely announced that it was going to be released on Shutter. And yeah. then shortly after that, Metro was doing three screenings of it. And it was really kind of him. He got back to us right away and said, like, I, I can likely send you a screener, but I'm also finding out about distribution soon. And I think because distribution was so soon after that, um, we didn't need a screener. Yeah. Which was which was awesome. But he was very kind to us. And I mean, that's the thing. We're from Edmonton, not Toronto, not Vancouver, not L.A. Mm-hmm. Right. Films don't get made here. They yeah. sometimes get filmed here, like The Last, Last of, of us. us, but they're not from here, made here, and then go on to become like one of the most talked about things going around. Yeah. When, so, you, when you hear this movie mentioned in the same sentence as The Blair Witch Project, Paranormal Activity, you know you're in for something real special. And so made in Edmonton by an Edmontonian or not, we would have been so stoked for this and that just made it even more special. There was a buzz, just yeah. an electricity of like pride in the room and in the line outside. Like it was, people got there earlier than I've seen people get to a show at Metro, sold out or not. We've been to quite a few sold out shows lately. We were in that line forever. Yeah. People were just like, milling with excitement and it was and we were, it was special when we were in line outside it was so funny because the the parents of the <laughs> two kids that are in the film and i think they're parents of one of the kids in the film anyway just like little nuggets they're taking pictures in front of the marquee <laughs> and the mom's like he's in the movie this is my boy's film <laughs> he's on the poster and the boys and then she's like say hi and he's like hi because <laughs> he's such a little nugget yeah so like the Kaylee and Kevin, like the actors who play them, the kiddos who play them were were there. Um, And it was just, you could just feel the pride from like those folks, like who were involved in the film, from people in the audience who know the filmmakers. And then from those of us, like we don't know anyone, but we're just like, damn, this is cool. Well, it was like, it's so funny because during the Q&A portion, there's people that like the director went to high school with that are just like, yo, Kyle. What what does this remind you of like this time? And he's that, like, that's a you problem. Stupid yeah, question. Move yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. It was it was wild. What do you think of Skin of Marink? So really appropriate that we watched Speak No Evil in this in the same week because I think they are both on opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of horror. Mm. And then we have a middle of the spectrum that I think is our next film. Mm. Um and this is also a very divisive horror film if you go to letterboxd it shows the sort of um rating spread rating spread that exists across all the ratings of letterboxd i've never seen a spread like this before yeah i'm more like this has been given an almost equal amounts of half one one and a half two two and a half three three and a half four four and a half five yeah it's almost a flat line yeah usually it's kind of like a um, bell curve with the like middle of the curve somewhere between three and four. Yeah. And this is. <laughs> it is wild. 
Yeah, I've never. And or sometimes you'll see like all fives or all ones. But this is the whole spectrum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just so, so strange. I think like I spoke about with Speak No Evil, so much about how you feel about this film is going to come down to what you are afraid of, what you have heard about this film before you watch it, mm-hmm. and the context in which you watch it. Yes. And I think I can say with all, almost absolute certainty that you are either going to think this is the most boring, stupid, ridiculous thing you've ever seen in your life and be mad at anyone who thinks otherwise, or you're going to think that this is the scariest, most innovative, exciting thing for horror that you've seen in ages and don't understand why anyone else thinks otherwise. Yeah. And there's going to be very little in between, I think, unless you're from Edmonton and you just are like, I didn't really like it, but I'm very proud that it's from Edmonton. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which, like, it's been very interesting to look at people trying to um, politely say that on their Letterboxd reviews. Yeah. And that's the discourse, man. It's just, it's very like planting the heels in the ground on either, on either one of those sides. And it, that's such, I feel like it's so cool that this film is getting out there at all. They're fully going to make their money back. Like they said, they mentioned that they're screening in 700 cinemas. I've also never had so many people, like we posted just a little Instagram story that we were at the theater. I've never had so many people who have never reached out to us before reach out to us and say, what did you think? Or I saw it last night. Yeah. Like people I never like and people who don't live in Edmonton, although many people are from Edmonton originally. Mm -hmm. But like people I didn't even realize followed our podcast account being like, I saw this last night. What did you think of it? Mm -hmm. Um, So like it's it's people are really getting out there and watching it. And like Chris Stuckman has done a review of it like. It's really, as an Edmontonian, mind-boggling. Yeah. Because it, I think it would be a big deal here regardless. Yeah. And then to be like, no, AV Club covered it and gave it an A. Yeah. And like, it's on Rotten Tomatoes with like, so many people having seen it. And yeah, it's just like, it's it's a really big deal. The director of We're All Going to the World's Fair said it was one of their favorite movies of last year. Like, there's a lot of people who are prominent in the industry. Like, this isn't just a, local homegrown thing even though it is a local homegrown thing yeah like we've seen another horror sci-fi film made in edmonton by an edmontonian that isn't receiving the same sort of love or attention that this is no and even when we went and saw that in the theater and the filmmaker was there so very similar and there was a q a after yeah the theater was almost empty yeah and we went on opening night that night too yeah and you and I went because it was made in Edmonton and the filmmaker was there. And I really did. Yeah. And they could not be more different movies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah, and you're right. Like, there's just something there. There's a special kind of magic that's tied up in everyone there. It was very electric in the room. But there's this there was this feeling. First of all, there was this feeling of pride I felt seeing the lineup, being in the lineup, and then sitting in the theater looking out at a sea of 498 other people that want to experience something for the first time. It's the way that I imagine you felt going to see Blair Witch Project after all of the buzz that surrounded that happened, or the first Paranormal Activity film, or just like something- But in the hometown it was made in. That's just it. Like 
there's that extra love. Like you feel so proud that it's <laughs> getting this attention after seeing another film that was made in Edmonton where again, yeah, it was nearly empty and now coming to something that is so local and tied in with your city. And is horror. Like we love horror and like yeah. something new and innovative in horror coming from here. Like, so again, I, I already said, I, this is a film I have a really hard time recommending. Yeah. I think you need to, the best thing I've heard people say, and it's and it's said everywhere, so if you know anything about Skin of Marink, you've likely heard this, is watch the trailer. The movie is that for 100 minutes. Yes. So if the trailer doesn't freak you out, or if you don't think it would freak you out if you times its runtime by 50 minutes, like... You know, if you took took that two minute trailer and did it a hundred times over, you probably won't like the movie. Yeah, you have a much better chance of feeling that feeling that many people are about this film if the trailer evokes something niggly within you, mm-hmm. and you know that you can have the patience and the willingness to immerse yourself in that world for a hundred minutes. But I have a hard time saying yes, watch it or no, don't watch it because I know that there are people that I love and who love horror movies in my own life that are going to hate this. Yeah. And if they watch it because we liked it, they're going to be kind of mad at us. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's really a decision you need to make on your own or one that you need to be like, I might not like this, but I do want to experience it. I want to talk a little bit more about context. Okay. Because I am so proud and so happy to have been there for this like electric opening night and like for all time to be able to say like this movie I genuinely think is going to be talked about in very divisive ways for the rest of time. Oh, yeah. It is now a part of horror history. And it's going to continue to be divisive, I think, for a very, very, very long time. I I feel like it's probably going to be on like some shutter thing next year, some documentary. Yeah. Because Shudder has acquired it. I feel like the best movies are divisive, though. Yes, because if you're if you're accessible to everyone, you're a hard three. Possession. Super divisive. Oh, I'm sure there's people who will watch that on our recommendation and be like, that was boring and weird and overacted and I hated it. Yeah. And that is okay. I don't think we should... Like, this is why movies and art exist and haven't stopped existing. Because we are different people and different art speaks to us. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I love that we can have different feelings about the same thing. That the hyper-specificity of of certain pieces of art can clutch some hearts and not others. Like, it's just, it's a really important thing. And this movie literally made me want to die at certain parts. Yeah. Where I was like, I feel like I'm going to have a panic attack if this doesn't end. Mm-hmm. Not the whole movie. No. But there were probably three or four times where I felt that. Like no. such a primal, not in an animalistic way like in possession, but primal as in like, I am a little kid who can't rational or logic myself out of this feeling. Yeah. Which I still sometimes get when I make you go check the house for a noise. Yeah. Such a deep within me feeling of dread that I wanted to not be watching or experiencing it anymore. Yeah. Same for you. Same for me. I want you, I want to, I want to get back to what you're talking about with context. 
So this was the tricky thing. That happened about three or four times seeing that in the theater. But I think if I had been watching it at home, I would have felt that way from start to finish. Yeah, I agree. And I, I feel like it's because this movie is focused within a singular home and within that very childlike feeling of fear that can exist within your own home. Because I felt that way when we watched Paranormal Activity for the first time. We actually watched it like we had just started dating. It was the, our very first like official date as a couple. What a dumb term, couple. I just don't. <laughs> I, I don't know. Whatever. We had just started dating. What would you prefer? Righteous pair. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Yep. The first on our first official date as a righteous pair. We were trying to decide between seeing paranormal activity and the fourth kind, and I chose the fourth kind, and it was terrible. But I also am kind of glad that then we watched Paranormal Activity at home because I think we might not have liked it as much or been scared as much if we had seen it in the theater mm-hmm. and the audience had been pissy or whatever, right? Like, just, yeah. if it had been a piss audience, it would have been tough. But I remember we watched it at your house in your room because we were still living at home and being like, that wasn't that scary. And then we kind of sat around talking as we do and eventually the TV shut itself off. So we'd been talking in like the dark with the glow of the TV And then the TV shut itself off. And we continued talking in the dark like a bunch of freaks. Mm -hmm. And then you had the vibrate on your phone on. Mm -hmm. And your phone vibrated and I screamed. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I guess that scared me more than I thought I did. Thought it did. And I think part of that is because paranormal activity takes place in a home. Mm -hmm. Right. And so watching it in a home, you don't have that reprieve of like, I'm going to leave this behind in the theater. It was a movie. Mm -hmm. The other thing is. And I've heard a lot of people talking about this. So it's such like Portrait of a Lady on Fire. This is a very quiet movie that requires a willingness to immerse yourself in it, like a commitment to that from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And it also needs the context to allow yourself to be immersed in it. This was actually a really phenomenal audience. I know that people are going to see this in theaters with really bad audiences that are booing and shouting and laughing and getting up and leaving and people did get up and leave in this Mm -hmm. i saw i think about five people walk out and i knew they were walking out because they had their winter coats on (laughs) and not just going to the bathroom um but out of 500 people pretty darn good yeah it was very like very respectful audience but it's such a quiet movie that when you've got 500 people that's 500 more people who might have to cough Mm -hmm. right that's as you put it, a thousand more hands, give or take, depending yeah. on how many hands you have, to be eating popcorn, to be accidentally kicking the beer can at your feet, Dropping to have to go phones. to, who have bladders and need to go to the bathroom, right? And because it's such a quiet film, you can hear all that. Yeah. You can hear the employees, you know, in the lobby who are making popcorn laughing with each other, mm-hmm. you know, and that I, have some pretty extreme sensory sensitivities i do a pretty decent job of turning it off when i'm at work but then i'm so drained from having to like manage that at work being around hundreds a hundred teenagers all day that i'm pretty fried by the time i get anywhere else and we saw this on a friday night so like every cough every sniffle every dropped phone every laugh in the lobby every person getting up to go to the bathroom every coat moving behind somebody pulled me out of my ability to be immersed in the film. 
You were tested this week. Three movies. Three movies. And we haven't even gotten to that last one yet. I've heard a couple other people say the same thing. Mm -hmm. But I've also heard people say, because the movie is so experimental, you don't ever see a character's full face. I think there's almost no straight on shots. It's a lot of still shots that cut to other still shots. Yeah. There's not a linear plot. I've heard people say, if I saw this anywhere other than the theater, I would have been on my phone. So there's something about the experience of seeing it in the theater that, A, how cool, because this is going to be a movie that's talked about forever. Yeah. But I think if you know you're somebody who can have patience and immersion at home, that I think this film would work better at home. Yeah. So I don't know. I just don't know. I think there's some people that this movie is only going to work for in the theater. And I think there's some people who this is going to work better for at home. And I think it would have worked better for me at home. And you can only see a film for the first time once. So I think if you want to see Skin and Meringue and you haven't seen it already, you need to think about that because it's going to be on shutter february 2nd is it uh yeah beginning of february which is pretty soon like i said great chance to just get a free trial watch it watch possession watch some of those pool docs yeah get rid of it if you don't have the money for it find somebody who has shutter and borrow their password no i'm not recommending that (laughs) (laughs) Um, i don't know yeah it's just it's it's tough for this because it is receiving so much hype and I, and that can also just be that can just be a nail in a coffin for a horror film when it's being lauded as the scariest horror film that has come out. And this is so specific. I think what this film does, if it works for you, and this worked for me, unlike Speak No Evil, which has worked for so many people. So I understand how while Skin and Ink worked for me, it might not work for somebody else. Is it evoked that primal childhood fear? of what's in the darkness like this to me i've been holding on to this to say to you here this is what kevin McAllister feels about the furnace in the basement yes made into an entire film yeah totally yeah and if you've had that like that i was the kid who ran up the stairs and jumped onto my bed so nothing could grab my feet Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I genuinely, like, I would freak myself out. I was the kid who couldn't have a leg out from under the covers because I was worried something would grab my leg. Yeah, I mean, I feel like at one point in our lives, we've all done some version of that. I mean, yes, this is a slow burn, but it just revels in so accurately tapping into those childhood fears. Like, it felt accurate to me of those little kid things that I would do that sometimes you still, sometimes you just sit there and you just stare into a void of darkness, like down the hall or something, and then your mind starts going wacky of like, did I just see something? Do I not see something? Maybe I saw something. And then you just scare yourself. And that's where the patience of the film and the length of the film, because I've heard a lot of people say they just think this would have worked better as a short, and there is kind of a short version of it that I'd like to watch at some point, but I didn't want to watch it first, called Heck, that Kyle Edward Ball made. Um and I've heard some people say, like, you know, if it was 20, 30 minutes shorter, maybe. I don't know. I haven't seen that cut. But I can tell you that as a kid and sometimes as an adult, when I've heard a noise in the night, I've sat, laid, paralyzed. And I can be convinced that I see a shadow. And what if that's a person standing in the corner? Mm-hmm. And I can in such fear, stay like that for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 minutes 
getting more and more and more scared until I finally convinced myself to turn on a light and realize it's just like the robe on the back of the right like you know what I mean and that that's what it's really like it's it's being gripped and stuck in that feeling of fear and being too afraid to take a step forward to figure out if the fear is founded or not yeah well and it's that's such a what you said primal little kid thing of you you feel and it taps into that so accurately because it is this like very little kid thing that you have since you were a little kid and the film revels in that being a little kid in that all of the the majority of the camera angles are low angle looking up at stuff so it's almost like you're at a kid's level experiencing the world and seeing it but what i really like that this film does which a lot of films really don't is that it scares don't rely on what is there but what may or not be there yeah and it i said this to you after it does a really good job of creating that feeling of your eyes adjusting to the darkness. Mm-hmm. So like, is there something there? And the longer you look at it, the more your eyes can see. And then you either realize it is or is not what you thought it was. And the film does both. Sometimes it is and it's absolutely awful and it makes you want to die. And sometimes it isn't and you're like, okay. But there is going to be something sometime eventually and I just don't know when. Yeah. It's wild. It also like it, it's really um a part of the like analog horror mm-hmm. tradition and like I think if you love analog horror you're probably just going to love this. Um so I looked up a definition of analog horror, do you know much about it? I don't know much about it. So this is from Wikipedia. Analog horror is commonly characterized by low fidelity graphics, cryptic messages and visual styles reminiscent of late 20th century television. This is done to match the setting as analog horror works are typically set between the 60s and the 90s. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Um I think I think this I think this film is so well executed and for the budget that they have, I think it looks great. Uh I appreciate the you know, the the patience that it has and the way that it subverts expectations, you know, of what we typically see in horror movies, especially movies like the next movie that we watch this week. And yeah, my, I think my only critiques of it are that Chris Duckman, he said it would be, it would have been nice at a 90 or even 80 minute runtime. I feel like it would still would have worked just as well within there because there is a lot of repetitive shots that Kyle Edward Ball said it took him four months to edit this thing. So Clearly, he wanted more time to linger in this in this universe. But it definitely tests the audience. Oh, big time. I mean, it has some like, like, I think this tests the viewer in a similar way to like Inland Empire. Yep, for sure. I'm, I'm glad this is not three hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, agreed. Um, and my only other critique, which I know you you brought up because you noticed it even more than I did, was that there are integrated subtitles in this and there's just some there's some punctuation there's, errors there's a lack of polish that's the word i use with my creative writing students that's that's good it would not get a five out of five in the polish category from me if i was marking this in my creative writing class and it's so funny because i thought that there was choices to leave out apostrophes and punctuation um that was character based and you're like no it was just 
They there were just some errors. There was just inconsistencies. Yeah. As somebody who has to mark punctuation errors all day, it was very, very noticeable to me and maybe a way that it wouldn't be for other folks. But I don't know if there's a way to fix that before it's on Shutter. Um, if anyone who is involved in the film, since you're from Edmonton, is listening to this, I will gladly fix your punctuation errors before <laughs> it goes to Shutter at no fee. Um, or at least like let us know what the intention is. Or if, or if it was on purpose. Yeah. I'd love to know why because that was a bit... De- when I was already so distracted because of how quiet the film was by my sensory problems, um, that was another thing that pulled me out of it. I'm like, why is there an apostrophe missing there? Why is there a comma missing there? And oh, now there is one there. And that I don't want to critique it too much, but that is something that I feel like, and I say this to my creative writing students, when I give you two weeks to hand something in, I expect those things to be fixed. And if you don't know, sorry, and I'm not saying this about these people, but I say this to my students. If you don't know how to use those pieces of punctuation, then ask me for help or ask somebody else and like get them to do a, a run through of it. So mm-hmm. I'd love if there is a way to have that fixed or it'll be like our uh, everything everywhere all at once auditors award. It'll just be misspelled. And that's part of the charm of it, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. I want to talk a little, little tiny bit about the Q&A because it was a little rushed. The film got started late because it was so, so busy um, and they brought a lot of people up. And there wasn't time for everybody to talk. And I, and I wish there had been. I wish we had a whole hour to hear from everybody. And I think it'd be cool if they could have maybe a just Q&A event at mm-hmm. some point. Um, but I thought that hearing from like Kyle Edward Ball a little bit about like some of the like real thoughtful intentions and others where he's like, no, that was just like a cool thing. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I loved hearing that. But the very best part is the kids were there. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe the kids watched the movie. Which, no, they got set up pre-movie with some noise-canceling headphones and, iPads. And, and some iPads and went out into the, the lobby, lobby yeah, I'm pretty sure. It's such an interesting question about when kids are in horror films. Like, should they watch their own film? Anyway, we don't have the time to talk about that right now. But uh, the actress who played Kaylee, they had asked the kids, was this fun? And she said, it was very fun indeed. <laughs> and I just think that was... Regardless of what you think of Skinamarink, the kids involved in it thought it was very fun indeed. And the kid who played Kevin said it was very fun and uh, it was very fun. <laughs> so they had fun. Just and so then you the know. crowd erupted. <laughs> yeah, we, we were all very happy about that. So I don't know. I think that if you like horror at all, Chris Duckman and others have said this. How can you not be inspired that a such a low budget film which is doing some pretty innovative things, whether you end up hating them or, or loving them, is in theaters right now, is really inspirational to like just make your art. Yeah. No matter what your limitations are. And knowing that that's from Edmonton makes me even more proud. So I agree. I think it's worth giving it a chance. I think it's worth looking into, like watching the trailer, knowing a little bit about what you're getting yourself into trying to let the discourse of it being the worst or the best horror movie ever made go out the window and experience it for yourself and think a little bit about whether theater or home is good for you. If you want to support the filmmakers, you could watch it at home but pay for a theater ticket. Mm-hmm. Not the worst thing in the world to do. We do things like that sometimes. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've I've honestly never seen a, a film like this. I I totally saw the innovation and... I was I was caught up in in everything that they were able to achieve with this film. And I want to watch it again, but I want to watch it at home. Yeah. 
glad it's coming to Shudder. How did it make you feel? It made me feel a primal sense of panic. Yeah. Yeah, it made me feel properly scared and grateful to be a part of the screening. It made me proud that this is coming from Edmonton and is getting the reception that it is getting, as divisive as it is. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm with you. It had moments in it that just made me want to die. <laughs> I don't know. I just, it's something special and I think we're only going to get more and more and better and better and angrier and angrier, yeah. I'm sure, conversations. But I I really appreciate folks and I, I think we try and have this approach and I hope that people who listen are appreciative of it, that even when we don't like something, we're not dismissive of, like even when it doesn't connect with us personally, we're not dismissive of it unless it's causing any kind of direct harm. I heard somebody on Reddit heard read somebody on reddit just say let people enjoy things (laughs) yeah so i i really hope that people have some really thoughtful conversations about this even if it's two people and one loved it and one didn't yeah that's what art is for Mm -hmm. let's talk about the last film of the week (laughs) yeah so we made the trek out for a little matinee and we went and saw m3 again or megan (laughs) m3 again (laughs) Um, it's 2023 horror sci-fi thriller directed by Gerard Johnstone, written by Akella Cooper and James Wan, based on a story by him. He didn't write it. It's just the stories. The story was from him. James Wan. Mr. Saw himself. Uh, it stars Alison Williams as Gemma, Violet McGraw as Katie, Ronnie Chang as David, Amy Donald as Megan, uh, which I assume is the, like, the body of Megan, and then Jenna Davis as the voice of Megan. Yes, correct. <laughs> the synopsis is a robotics engineer at a toy company builds a lifelike doll that begins to take on a life of its own. Ooh. It's so interesting because January is kind of renowned as the dumping ground for studio films that they don't really give a shit about. And yeah. typically some of the worst movies of the year come out in January. But 2022 for horror movies was pretty solid. Mm -hmm. There's some really great stuff coming out. And then even as this is, whether it was dumped or strategically placed in January is a pretty great romp for a January horror movie. what do you think of Megan? So do you remember a while ago I showed you that meme of like dumb, dumb movies, dumb, smart movies, smart, dumb movies and smart, smart movies. Yeah. I think this is a dumb smart movie. Yeah. Like totally. And it knows it. And I love that. Like this movie when I talk about this spectrum, I feel like, you know, in The Innocence and Speak No Evil are on this end of like very like the attempt is to be very thoughtful, to explore some very purposeful themes. They're very um cinematic. And then you've got like a film like Skin Marink, which is experimental and it's low budget. And then you just get a film like Megan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We want the teens to come out and see it. We mm-hmm. want you to have a good time. And then it's cool if you never think about it again. Yep. <laughs> and and then and, and it knows it and it doesn't try to be anything other than what it is. And and I, you know, I was in from the opening scene. The opening scene is so ridiculous that it lets you know that this movie knows exactly what it is. It's almost, I feel like this is almost the direction that James Wan is wanting to go in. I know he didn't direct it, but 
you look at a film like Malignant, M- Malignant, which I feel in a way is almost just the R-rated version of Megan. I mean, but honestly, Saw is dumb smart too. Yeah. And Ted Silence is so, and Insidious, like they've all been there all along. I think he's just leaning into the like, the fun of it. Yeah. The goofiness of it. And like the, he's leaning into the fact that like screaming and laughing are two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Because there, I laughed a lot in this movie, but not in a dismissive way. Like I like no. felt like I had permission to laugh from the oh, filmmakers yeah. from the opening scene. Yeah, yeah. And I and I loved that. Um, I love horror that gives you permission to laugh, and yeah. you're not laughing to be like dismissive, like "ha ha, this isn't scary," or laughing because you're so scared you're trying to convince yourself you're not. You're just like, "This is funny." <laughs> well, and it's horror that understands its audience and respects its audience. And isn't trying to punch down or be more than it is. It's just try. It's strictly there to entertain and to provide a fun time, which it totally did. And the the interesting thing is, I guess that they originally filmed it as an R rated film. I could have used that. And I, so here's the thing. I know. I agree. I could have used it too. And they filmed it that way. And I think Malignant is an R rated film. It is. Yeah. But then as they were editing it, they realized that they were so close to being a 14A film. There's like, let's get the teens in. Yeah, yeah, that's, yep. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, the teens are going to like it. I actually think like PG-13, if you're in America, 14A, if you're here, it, horror is really important. Because I remember as a teenager, I liked that PG-13, 14A horror when I was like late elementary and preteen. Because I'm so cool. <laughs> but then when I was like 15, 16, 17, I wanted to see these R-rated films and couldn't get into them. And I have to try and sneak into the theater. Like, sometimes, you know, my dad would take me because he liked horror, too, or I'd get my sister to take me. But some films, like, you couldn't get into even if you were even if you were with someone who was over 18. Yeah. And so I do think that this 14A horror is really important for two reasons. One is it's, like, an accessible horror for younger folks to get them into the genre. Yeah. Whether they are 13 or 14 or younger. And there were some really young kids at, the, at Megan. Mm-hmm. Which I'm not against, unless they can't sit still, then I'm against it. But I also think it's a good 14A horror films are good for bridging horror and non horror people. Mm-hmm. Like, Megan is something we could watch with some of our friends who don't like horror movies, right? Like, it's a good, like, safe ground for people who are like, they're not totally anti horror, but they're not going to come see Hereditary with you. Yeah. So I, I, I really do feel these films are important, but the problem is it brings out the teens and not all teens, but many teens and preteens. Just can't handle their shit at yeah, the movie theater. Yeah, they are theater. just piss poor audience members. Yeah. And some pee-pee-poo-poo people in the crowd. It's really stonk. We moved seats. <laughs> and then when we moved seats, we were next to like a young couple. I think they were teenagers who were like kind of, they were not terrible, but they were whispering to each other through most of the film. Yeah. You're trying to be quiet, but um, I wanted to just add to that too. Like, I agree, going to see horror movies growing up was always this very tricky dance as you got older and wanted to see like the R rated movies. So it just became this thing of how do I sneak into the theater to see this movie? I mean, the we're from a, a small, a smaller town south of Edmonton called the Duke, if you don't know it, and that theater was pretty easy to sneak into. You just pay for one ticket and then walk into the other theater, yeah, sit in the back, whatever, yeah. Um, 
I think I did that with Hostel on like opening I night. I did it with one of the screams. Or not screams, sorry, one of the saws. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I agree. Like, I think it is important to have these movies that teens can go to and start letting their horror fan flag fly. Um, but it's also nuts to me because I was thinking about it. Like, Skinamarink is rated PG. Like, well, for a second, I thought the kids were gonna like the kids who were in the movie were gonna be watching the movie, and I'm like, seems a little intense. <laughs> yeah, and then when you know, and it takes a while for it to really ramp up its scares, but then when it does i was like the kids cannot be in here this they'll never go to sleep again yeah like if i saw skinamarink when i was like seven i would have died oh yeah like i've never been okay again it almost kind of would play for me if i saw it when i was younger it almost play for me the way that the videotape in the ring would play uh-huh which scares the piss out of me oh yeah and i honestly would watch a 100 minute version of the tape from the ring oh god yeah if anyone wants to make that (laughs) yeah but megan i feel like it's totally fun it's it's come out at a very relevant time where ai is having this really big uptick in the zeitgeist so it very much knows when it's coming out the kind of audience that it wants to speak to the kind of societal things that are going on within that world and exploiting it for horror which is is great again that's what horror is great for and it's not doing it in a particularly nuanced or thoughtful way it's pretty surface level dumb smart but again when i personally was like 10 to 13 that's about the level i had the ability to process yeah and if i want to look at like an ex machina later on Mm -hmm. i will but right now, Megan is a great way to, like, if I'm 12 years old and I'm watching Megan, it's a great way to start me thinking about those things. Oh, yeah. That then I can get really interested in these explore, like, in, in a pulse or other movies that have technology in them <laughs> <laughs> when I'm older uh, and, and starting to think about those things in perhaps some more existential ways. And if you were a 12-year-old who's ready for that, that's awesome. But I wasn't. Yeah. And so these movies, like, they they serve that purpose. And I get really frustrated when people are like, well, it wasn't nuanced. I'm like, well, it's a 14A horror film. If you're gonna go to Skin, if you're gonna go to Skinamarink, understand that you're getting into an experimental, pretty repetitive look at primal fears of childhood. And don't get mad at it when it's so-called boring. If you're gonna go to Megan, know that you're getting into a dumb, fun ride it's a little silly and don't get mad at it when it's dumb yeah (laughs) that's just it i feel like it's so funny that just in the conversations we've had today and because we've watched so many different kinds of horror movies that there truly is just something for everyone and it i just don't i don't like it when people poo poo on other people for liking the stuff they like but I do like to hear why people didn't like something. That's just it. And, and I like to hear why people like something, why they don't like something, why something resonated, why it didn't resonate. I mean, and, but there's literally, like you said, there's something for everyone. There's people will love the Megans of the world. Yeah. And people will love the I'm Skinner sure a lot of, of my world. students loved Megan and I get why. Like it's super fun. Megan is a great character. Like she's she's going to be iconic forever. 
I also, um, I haven't seen Child's Play in a really long time, and I don't know that I've ever even seen a not-for-TV version. Like, the only time I've ever seen it in its entirety was, like, a Saturday afternoon where me and my mom were home and nobody else was, and it was on TV, and we watched Children of the Corn and Child's Play back-to-back, and then she fell asleep. Um, But apparently this does, like, direct homage to, like, shots and scenes from Child's Play, so I love that it's not trying to hide its inspiration. Yeah. Um, that it's like, yep, we are a new version of Child's Play and we owe a lot to it. Um, I don't know. I thought it was really fun and the audience sucked as I typically expect when I go to see a PG-13 movie, but the movie itself was pretty fun. I want to talk about one really interesting thing, or I think it's interesting. Um, so Allison Williams, who's in this and was in Get Out. She has a lock on on playing characters that you love to hate, by the way. Absolutely. In girls as well. She did an interview recently where someone called her a scream queen. And she said this. I don't know that I've ever screamed on camera. I'm probably more like a gasp queen. <laughs> and so now this term's being used to gasp queen instead oh, of scream queen. Fuck. I love that. And so she meant it in a really literal way that like she hasn't screamed on camera. But I'm wondering... If we take that outside of that literal context, what do you think the difference is between a gasp gasp queen and a scream queen? I feel like there's subtlety to a gasp queen. Yeah. Like, yeah, it, I feel like it's almost somebody that has maybe a little bit more control over their situation, even though maybe they don't, but they handle it with a little bit more. I don't know if it's nonchalance. Or if it's cockiness, or if it's just this perceived strength that they might have over in in the situation. Whereas a scream queen, it's just kind of like everything's chaos, everything's gonna kill me, I'm gonna die. Like, would you say Anya Taylor Joy is a gasp queen? Yeah. Like the menu, the witch. Yeah, like I, I don't feel like she, I don't feel like she really loses it the way that, like you you say scream queen, I go immediately to Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween. Does she scream? Oh, yeah. And she's pretty frantic throughout the whole movie. Yeah, and that's the energy I kind of get. Or even the show Scream Queens, they're always screaming and running around. <laughs> like, there's just this franticness to them. Whereas I feel like a gasp, a gasp queen, even if they're doing the same thing, it's all like... Huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, okay. I, I, Keep this peachy. I just realized that that's just going to come across as audio. Yeah. And <laughs> Nobody saw you with your like head movements, silly shoulders and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But I love that. Like, I love she. She really did mean that literally. Like, I haven't screamed on camera, but I like this new terminology that I think is going to get picked up of the gasp queen. That's really good. Um, I don't know. I'll watch the next Megan. It was fun. Yeah, M. Forgan. It was fun as shit. Yeah, uh, I really, I really enjoyed it. I had fun. I had fun getting out for a little matinee watching it. I also feel like it had something a little bit thoughtful to say about grief and the processing of said grief. So there's a little bit of the smart and the dumb smart coming yeah. out here. Again, like I actually liked everything it had to say. It just was very surface level. But sometimes we need to start with surface level. And I, I love just a little popcorn movie. It is 100% a popcorn movie. Yeah. And we need those. After Skinnamarink, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Possession, The Innocence, and Speak No Evil. We needed a popcorn movie. I, ju- I just I just kind of thought of this. Um, so like you said, we saw Skinnamarink on a Friday, but no less. It was Friday the 13th. So maybe that's why we watch so many horror movies. Because in our back of our minds, we're like Friday the 13th. Maybe. Scary time. Also, we just love horror films. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
How did Megan make you feel? It made me feel a ridiculous and expected sense of fun. I agree with that. Made me pleasantly surprised of how much I enjoyed it. Um, but also just, yeah, this very unexpected and grateful sense of fun. Yeah. All, All right. right. Bad dads and rad dads. This was probably the most difficult week I've ever had. I feel really confident in mine, personally. There were so many choices. Yeah, but I still feel very confident in mine. Okay. Who are your bad dad nominees of the week? I like that you gave it a plural because mine is a plural. <laughs> mine is too. <laughs> uh, so my, I am co-nominating Bjorn and Louise from Speak No Evil. Exact same. <laughs> I started writing another one and then I was like, no. No, it's these two dill holes. Yeah, like they are simultaneously overbearing and selfish. Like they both want to control their daughter and then like when their daughter actually needs them, they're just like, oh, sorry, I'm doing something I enjoy right now. Um, their own faults put their kid in danger and they refuse to reflect on that. Um, they make choices that they think are like they make choices about the present moment rather than the long term. They're just dill holes. Yep. They're bad communicators with no boundaries. I greatly dislike them. They're bad dads. They are bad, bad, bad dads. Bjorn and Louise. Kick rocks. Get out of here. See you never. Pee pee poo poo. All right. That was easy. Okay. Rad dad. I also think we're going to have the same one. First name on three. Okay. Well, one, two, three. Marianne. Oh. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I chose Marianne from Portrait of a Lady on Fire. All right, tell me why. I, I I chose her because she's supportive, she's caring, she's passionate. She has a strength about her in everything that she does. Like there's this confidence that she exudes. There's no I feel like there's no ego with her when it comes to her art, but also just her personality and the way that she chooses to live her life. Yeah. I think she's just cool. She's kind of the opposite of Bjorn and Louise in that, like, it's not like she doesn't make mistakes because she does. Mm-hmm. But she's willing to, like, take accountability for them, have hard conversations, admit her messy feelings. And, like, like there's two key points I'm thinking about in the film. One where she has to admit something she's not proud of. And she says, I want to be the one to do that. Mm-hmm. And then another where... You know, there there is kind of the messiest conversation between her and another character. And she's like willing to admit those messy feelings in the moment. Yeah, I see it. I, I do see yeah, it. Nice. Um, Who's yours? Aisha from The Innocents. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's just like, she's got a kindness and empathy, a sense of responsibility and protection. Like she's the, the one good kid of the four kids. <laughs> yeah. And like, she's just so sure of what is right Mm -hmm. and she will go like she has integrity Mm -hmm. and she uses that integrity to particularly there's a character who's like like really not so great there there is a character who shows us that you don't have to stay the same yes and aisha's the reason that that character learns that yeah and that is a very parental thing and like aisha is the parent when nobody else is Mm-hmm. Who's like keeping a moral compass on things and doesn't force people to be any one way, but is like a model and a guide mm-hmm. of like what you can be. 
but I but I can acquiesce. To <laughs> yeah, I feel like I just didn't get as connected. She's a little kid. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Marianne from Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Be Your dad. dad. <laughs> Naturally. Bonus daddy. Yeah. Um, I was almost thinking of calling for two bonus daddies this week. I mean, so I have bonus daddy of Eloise. Me too. Written down. But I mean, Anna, not Anna from The Innocents, Anna from Possession. Yeah. We want a co-bonus daddy? Co-bonus daddy. Might have to. Yeah. Those are two of the most beautiful ladies I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yes. All right. right. So Eloise from Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Anna from Possession. We Okay. We have run real long this episode. Thanks for sticking sticking it out with us. Before we go, Rad Wreck. Very simple. Schedule in, if you like watching movies, which I assume you do if you listen to this show, schedule in some matinees or movie days. Like we said, we're very pumped because literally within the hour, our buddy Ashley is bringing burgers. We're going to watch the Bob's Burgers movie. It's going to be a lovely Sunday afternoon. Yeah, I don't know if you saw. She said she's getting burgers, fries, and a root beer float. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Like that sounds like such a lovely Sunday afternoon. And we went and saw Megan in the middle of the day. It was a great way to break up the day and still have our evening to ourselves. Um, so that's the rad wreck. Hit up some matinees, schedule your own at home, have some friends over, make an event of it, have a real nice chill. So that's rad wreck of the week. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts. Our usernames for those are in the show notes. And we would love you forever if you could share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these two gasp queens this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.